Welcome to Demond Does the Six Questions, where the same six questions can tell a unique story. I am your host, Demond, father of two, husband of one, and leader of this here Demondcast. And thank you for joining us. Uh, I hope you listened to last week's with Chris Bornier. That was dope. With We were talking about Lady Wrestler, his documentary that he's got coming out. And oh my goodness, actually, that should have came out yesterday. And I am, am pumped to watch it. And please remember, before we get started, please remember to make sure you get whatever you download this app or download this podcast. That's what I meant. Leave a rating and review. It'll take you a couple minutes and it helps us get seen by more people so we can keep this thing growing. And my guest is a playwright, novelist, and scholar. She has received grants from the National Endowment of the Arts, the Rockefeller Foundation, and the Ford Foundation. She also bikes at night year-round meeting bears, multi-legged creatures of light and breath, and the occasional shooting star. Her newest novel, Master of Poises, is out now and here to talk to me and talk to you about it. Please welcome Andrea Hairston. Thank you. Wow, what a great introduction. Thank you, thank you. You're very welcome. Thank you. I'm just very excited to talk to you, so yay. Yay, that makes two of us. Let's do this. <laughs> Thank you for uh, taking time out of your day to talk to a perfect stranger. I appreciate you. Andrea Hairston, are you ready for the six questions? Okay. Question number one. When did you know you wanted to be a writer? Well, I've always wanted to be a writer. I told stories to myself when my mother said I had to go to bed and I wasn't really sleepy, but I couldn't bother other people, so I would get in my bed and I'd tell myself stories. I came up with play ideas that my brother and I acted out, and we made my parents and the neighborhood people like sit down and watch these plays. I mean, I always wanted to be a writer. I, I thought I was going to be a scientist. And these are early years. I'm talking like six and seven years old. I decided I was going to be a, a physicist. And everybody thought I was going to do that, too. It was the 60s. Being a black woman scientist was as impossible as being a black woman writer. But um, everybody thought, well, why waste all my talent on the art? So, I mean, if you're going to struggle or you're going to have to struggle with 400 years of systematic oppression, you should do it from physics and math and, you know, break ground there. So everybody was supporting me in my desire to be a physicist. And they thought it was really cute that I, like, wrote and did plays and act things out. Finally, you know, uh, I'm, in, I'm in college, you know, and I, I did uh, theater in high school, and my mother put me in plays right off because I had a lot of energy, so she, again, wanted me to have something to, like, use up the energy, so go be in a play. I'm in college, and I, I still think I'm going to be a physicist or a mathematician, but I took black theater the second semester of my first year of college. Then my sophomore year, I actually dropped a physics course and picked up a playwriting course instead. And that should have told me that, yeah, well, you're going to do this writing thing. And then my math professor was just horrible in my junior year. And, I mean, I just didn't know if I was going to survive this class. You know, all the racism and sexism you can imagine just came out. Um, and he decided I wasn't serious because I had black fingernail polish stars around my eyes and a big afro. 
but I, I was getting all the right answers. So it was a really weird dynamic and everybody was calling me up and asking me for help. But then I just said, why am I doing this? So I switched my major the second semester of my junior in college to a theater major and I wrote plays. I applied to graduate school in theater and in law because, you know, I still couldn't believe I was going to go into theater or go into the arts or go into writing. Um, but I, and I only got into the law school. So I thought, oh my God, okay, this is telling me I shouldn't do the writing. But instead, I, I, I went off and I was a math textbook editor for a year because I had the magic of being able to do math and do writing. And so, and then I applied to graduate school again. And this time I got into Brown University for theater. And then, after that, it was like, okay, you're going to be a writer. That's what you're going to do. And, you know, everybody got used to it. They were like, you're not going to be, a, you know, a, a physicist, a mathematician. And I was like, no, no, I'm going to be a playwright, a director, and now a novelist. That is an incredible story. So you went to school to be a physicist? And, yeah. And then and like you've always created stories. This sounds very familiar. So you, yes. so you created stories. You decided I'm going to be a physics. I'm going to, I'm going to be a physicist because I'm going to be practical. And then you get there, and because you get, you, and I'm not saying because, but you also have a racist oh, person. Lord have mercy. Yeah, and sexist. You know, because this is the the sixties. You know, so I'm seventies. When I went uh, as a math textbook editor, I was the first black woman working in in my office. <laughs> Right, so I was like, oh, Lord, and I, I actually love science. I wasn't, like, just being practical. I love math, and I love, I mean, I still do. I love physics. I love biology. I love chemistry. And I was just like, wow, you know, so all, all, actually all my friends are like, what? You're a writer? You're not a physicist? Although they also go, oh, yeah, but you always wrote. So I had, you know, multiple interests. And theater is really, it's great. It's like problem-solving. Being a, um, a stage manager, which was one of my first jobs in theater, is like engineering, right? Because you got to put up a whole show. You got to get all these people together. You got to get all this stuff working together. You got to do all of these things. And at eight o'clock on opening night, everybody has to be there the audience, the actors, all the clothes have to be made. Everything has to be done. And you have to reverse engineer how all that's going to happen. So I felt at home in the theater. I started in theater actually as a techie, you know, helping out lights and sets and, and um, costumes and things like that. Because that's a great place if you come from the sciences. Actually, I think one of my friends in a math class was working at the shop. She said, oh, you should come and work at the shop. So I went and worked at the shop and, you know, helped them build things. And that's how I ended up meeting a lot of theater people um, in college. And a lot of them had also been in math. You know, so we were like, hey, let's, Oh, okay, like we got to like figure out how to do the lights for this. And this is back before we had computer lighting. So you really had to know some physics. <laughs> you know, you had to understand angles and color and electricity and, and resistors and a whole bunch of things. So it was a perfect thing for me to do to enter into theater was to, you know, run the light board <laughs> and hang the lights and put the gels in and do all the, you know, really techie things um, that is required to put on a show. But then I ended up also writing. And then I stopped doing the techie stuff, although it's deeply embedded in me. And that stage manager head, I, you know, director stage manager head, I, oh, I can reverse engineer anything. You know, theater people know how to get something done. I felt like there was a huge crossover between the theater and all of my math and science. And then the writing. So it was all, it was all of a piece. I just didn't know it. 
I, you told me how the sciences had helped you as working in the theater. How has it informed your writing? Oh, okay. Well, you, one of your other questions was, what do you wish you had known when you started out? When I started out writing, I, I was distressed. I thought I was leaving math and science behind. And so I had actually a lot of agony about that because I really identified as a, you know, a person who did math and science. But I loved it. And, you know, the scientists and mathematicians were my heroes. And I loved science fiction. If I had known that, like, knowledge and wisdom isn't really compartmentalized, that I could think anything I want and about everything and be a writer as well as a scientist, like Carl Sagan, who wrote novels and was a, you know, astronomer. He says in Contact, we should send poets to see the stars so they can describe what they're seeing. You know, you don't have to compartmentalize uh, ways of knowing. You know, they kind of blend into one another, and each thing offers you something special. So I feel like I can use the special knowledge and the special wisdom of mathematics for everything just the way I can use the special knowledge of theater for everything. So like I said, theater people can get anything done. So people always come to me to get stuff done, whether it's a play or a meeting or, you know, whatever. It's like, oh, okay. So and then I, I use theater in order to organize people, get group creativity working, solving problems, you know, people who have different perspectives, like actors talking to designers talking to techies, that's a, you know, real language barriers there. Um, and just, you know, that's something I know how to do. I didn't have to leave science and math behind. I became a science fiction and fantasy writer. <laughs> so I even use it, of course, when I'm writing and when I'm thinking, when I'm coming up with my stories. I realize it's, it's all of a piece. It's not that I was a scientist. And now I'm a writer. It's that, oh, those are all connected. It's a continuum. I was always interested in, like, answering questions about the universe and expressing myself about them. <laughs> Seeing when I take away those parameters that we usually put on science and theater, that sentence is neutral. Like, I'm always interested in expressing what I understand about the universe from a kid till now. So I'm still on my track. Question number three. What's your go-to order at your favorite hometown restaurant? Okay, so that was a hard one because I live in Northampton or Florence, Massachusetts, which is part of Northampton, Massachusetts. Um, and this is a restaurant town, right? So we got every kind of restaurant. I mean, it's amazing how many restaurants like Indian and vegan and down-home cooking and Chinese and Korean and Italian and French and, you know, I mean, you go across the river and get, you know, Ethiopian. So it's just, that was a hard question. So, but I did come up with the answer. Brunch tostada at Paul and Elizabeth with soy sausage and a side of their onion rings, which they make like tempura. And then they have a strawberry rhubarb pie in the spring that is to die for. I have no idea. Most of that stuff, I have no idea what it is, but it sounds delicious. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it's good. Is there a reason you picked that, or is there like any special memories or anything I, like when well, you first had it? Or I, go to like Paul, I go to Paul and Elizabeth's restaurant every Sunday. Oh, I used to before the you know, COVID thing. And I would have the brunch tostada with soy sausage, 
not every time, but often I would have the side order of onion rings, which are these, like, I mean, unbelievable onion rings. And then in the spring, they have the strawberry rhubarb pie. And rhubarb is, grows around here, so it, it's all fresh. And Paul and Elizabeth, it's a whole foods restaurant, so everything is fresh, made from scratch. And the tostada, I mean, it's like beans and cheese and an egg and like salsa and avocado. I mean, it's just really good. Question number four. What are you curious about? You, you ask really good, really hard questions. So my answer was everything. And then I said, well, that's just silly, Andrew. Like, make a list. So I made my list off the top of my head. Space, time, bugs, dirt, cultures, history, music, art, stars, rivers, cloth, performance, mammals, lightning, emotions, consciousness, AI, economic systems, blood, microorganisms, language, film, philosophy. With somebody with so many varied interests and things that you're curious about, uh-huh. how do you... How do you make time for so many different interests? Well, one, I read fiction. So fiction is great because fiction will allow you to investigate like this whole swath of things. A good author will investigate these things for me, and I can take their ride and you know have a sense of their perspective on these things. Um, I am you know I, I I teach at a college, so I'm lucky. I get to read for a living. So I can read up on all of the things that I, I just mentioned. And space, you know, I was a physicist, so I subscribe to magazines and I read what they have to say about space and time. And I love bugs, so I constantly read about um, the social insects and other, you know, and I read about spiders too who aren't insects, but hey, they're close. So I immerse myself. I am blessed with friends who are also interested in this. I'm always reading. I'm doing research right now on artificial intelligence, so I've been reading deeply in that, but I always read in it, you know, so it's an ongoing interest, and then when I'm working on a particular book, I might plunge a little more deeply into, like, I'll read the entire book rather than just the articles that the author wrote. Uh, I'm reading one on surveillance capitalism, gets into AI and economic systems, (laughs) so some of the things, again, aren't compartmentalized. So if I want to study cloth, then I can also study history, music, art, performance, mammals, and cultures. So each thing is like a universe of its own, and within that universe, the other things are often engaged. Question number five. Is there anything I should have asked but didn't? I thought of a question, what are my favorite adventures? Because I think that's a really great question to know what people think as their their adventures in their life um, that really had a deep impact on them. That was the question. Did you want me to answer that question? So, Miss Harrison, what are your some of your favorite adventures? <laughs> okay. So doing theater with Chrysalis Theater, I have this Chris, uh, this theater group that um, I started a long time ago, 1979, with a whole group of people, and we've been doing plays and readings and workshops and working with people all over the world, and so we had the most incredible experiences, you know, working with all kinds of people, 
in Germany, we did workshops in Springfield, which is a you know a town not far from us. We worked with refugees. We worked with pregnant and parenting teens. I've done shows with college students. I've done work with social workers. I've just had so many amazing theater experiences where I made a family of people and then we did these incredible plays. So that's been a big adventure. Climbing in the Alps, that's another one. We had these German friends. We'd get up really early in the morning, like insanely early, drive somewhere so we could be there by 6 o'clock or 7 o'clock, climb up this impossibly steep mountain, eat a huge meal on the top because sometimes they have cafes on the tops of their mountains, and then walk back down, and it's just breathtaking. Driving up the West Coast from San Francisco to Seattle, and I did readings from my novel and music with my partner to see all of the, the, the landscape, the ocean, and to meet the people and to eat like smoked salmon. So we met a, an amazing group of indigenous people and they had their like different kinds of smoked salmon that we like bought out and stuffed ourselves with. So that was great. Learning a foreign language, that was an adventure because I've learned German before I climbed, when I was climbing the Alps. I really got fluent in the language so I could see a different world and then biking the carriage roads in um, Arcadia National Park in Maine. I love the park, and when I go there, I just, you know, I get on my bike and I ride for hours, and I climb a mountain on my bike, and I see the ocean, and I feel the trees and the breeze and, you know, all the creatures, and then I, you know, come down, and it's unbelievable. So it's one of my favorite things to do, and it still surprises me every time. Question number six. If you could create a new holiday, what would it commemorate? I write about festival, <laughs> and one of the things that I do is festival drama as a scholar, so I study festivals. So in my novel, Master of Poisons, I create a festival. It's called the Ishne, or Aishne, sorry, Aishne Festival. That word uh, means, in, in, in the language that I make up, Anawanama, that woven from the same threads, strangers who are family. And so this festival is when people come together, see that they are strangers who are family, that they are woven from the same threads. So they celebrate their connections to strangers and they tell stories on each other and find each other, like find the people who are like, oh my God, you are just in my story and I didn't know you and you're a stranger. This is a festival that requires us to get beyond our images of one another and find the threads that can hold us together. That's the holiday I would create. That was a deeper answer than I was expecting. That was really cool. I'm going to have to go listen back to that again to make sure I wrap my head around it. That's awesome. So let's talk about your book, Master of Poisons. Master of Poisons is a fantasy novel. There's a poison wind is blowing across the land. You know, it's like a poison desert. And this is the Arcesian Empire. And people want to deny that this is happening, that there's a desert coming that's, you know, just laying waste to everything. If you get caught in it, you die. So, you know, denial is like, you know, ridiculous, but they're doing it. 
And Jola, who is the protagonist, is a, he's an advisor to the emperor, and he's trying to save the land. He's trying to save the people. He's trying to save the weeds and the wild things. But nobody wants to listen to him. Um, they're in denial. <laughs> they won't listen to him. And Awa, who's the other main character, she's a friend to bees and crows and wild dogs and horses. And she's trying to find the story power to conjure the world she wants because she wants to be a griot, which is, I use the West African term for storyteller, for a historian, for advisor, because that's what a, you know, a griot is in West Africa. I use that in my novel. She's trying to become one of those. And she needs to know the history, the stories of the people and of the creatures of the land. So she's trying to do that. And she and Jola both are tested, you know, like he's trying to say, look, look at this desert. I know all this about it. You've got to pay attention. And she's trying to understand all the wisdom that all the different peoples in this empire have that the empire would try to ignore. And they try to save the world they love. And it's fun. It's an adventure. <laughs> Man, that went by so fast. Thank you so much for your time. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you very much. Oh, I, my pleasure. And you can find more out about Andrea Hairston at our website, andreahairston.com. And you can get our book, Master of Poisons, which sounds super interesting. You can get that anywhere where books are sold. Thank you for joining us. Please remember to leave a rating and review wherever you download this. If, you, if you're at Apple Podcasts, click the purple icon and leave a quick five stars and then a quick review. And so more people can see what we're doing here because uh, we're starting to do some things and starting to grow. And it's because of you. And I thank you for that. Next week, I will be interviewing pulp author, nine-year-old comic book creator, and a guy who thinks that the Indies do not get enough respect, Keith Gaston. So until next time, see you. Hear it, speak it, live.